0: You have a bible this morning and you want to read along with us today. We'd like to try to lift up the Lord this morning through his word. We're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to read the all 25 verses and of course many of you may know that it begins with a list of names that encompass the lineage of Christ and that will be our focus this morning, an aspect of that. I'm sure that I'll pronounce a lot of things wrong. and There are some names here that I think have been translated into Greek or use the Greek reference to them, so I may change them as I can pronounce them a little easier from the, the Hebrew. So um, Bear with me as I try to read this morning. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brethren. And Judah begot Phares, and Zara of Thamar, and Phares begot Ezra, and Ezra begot Aram. And Aram begot Amminadab, and Amminadab begot Naason, and Naason begat Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, And Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon, of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abia, and Abia begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Ozias. And Ozias begot Joatham, and Joatham begot Achaz, and Achaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. And Josiah begot Jehoiachin and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jehoiachin begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Sadoc, and begot Sadok, and Sadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad, and Eliad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations, from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost." Did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. That'll conclude our reading this morning, and um, we're going to focus on the first 16 verses of our reading today, and the title of our message this morning is, When Good Men fail when good men fail um, as you well know um, the bible in your own life experience has revealed to us that we in this life are engaged in a series of warfares the bible more obviously accurate and very succinct at times reveals, especially in the New Testament, just how we're engaged in this warfare. Um, we're engaged against, number one, I guess if I was to try to loosely identify what the Bible does, it's a threefold warfare. One of it is against our adversary. And what is most common, at least, from my observation is that people have a tendency to either overcredit Satan with his with their ailments and struggles and fights or they don't think that he at all tries to affect them and yet the bible is very clear that he hates you he wants nothing less than to destroy you entirely. He does not play fair or warfare. Um, in our world today, there's been an agreement that, after World War I, that even in warfare, we wouldn't use chemical warfare, because it's just too terrible. And there are other provisions that the world has agreed on that involves fighting fair. Satan does not fight fair. He will do everything in his power to destroy your life and make it as painful and awful as you enter into eternity unprepared to meet God. Furthermore, we find in the Scriptures that we fight a warfare against the powers of the world. That there are ideologies out there. That there are people who no doubt work in conjunction, and perhaps you might say under the governance, either knowing or unknowingly under Satan, But there are people and ideologies and things that we war against that we have to resist, that we have to fight. The most difficult of warfares is yet one even most closer to home. And that is you. Your greatest warfare is you. Your body that the Bible says has no good thing in it. There is nothing good about you and me externally. Our thoughts, our intentions are set upon evil continually. Just like in the days of Noah prior to the flood. Un. Affected by the Lord, and the older I get, the more I recognize how deep that that sin goes. Paul said it well when he said, When I desire to do good, I find that evil's present in me, or even when you're wanting to do a good Christian charitable deed bore from initially that spark of God that was placed inside of you. It's almost amazing to me how quickly that pride can well up in my heart over the good deed that God is moving me to do. Hoping to be seen, hoping to be celebrated, or in the very least, applauding self for what self is doing. I used to think that there would come a day in Christian maturity where you get past that only to learn through the pages of scriptures that never comes. We fight as John the writer said in 1 John chapter 2. All that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we war against those things. I find that that warfare is so deep in my nature that I have to war it in my dreams. You have to war against sin. Isn't that amazing? That our minds are so fallen that they can create false things in our minds that we would dream about that are sinful. Reactions that we might have. Thoughts that we might have in dreams. That really drill down to the core of just how sinful that we are. And nobody is immune to this. So you think of someone that you hold in really high esteem. Perhaps they've passed away. Perhaps there's somebody that has become just this almost hero out of folklore to you. That you've put them on a pedestal. And and there can become this, especially if you're a young person this morning, this tendency... To subconsciously think that there is a species of man or woman that has a power to rise above those same sinful inclinations that the rest of us have. But let me tell you right now, there is no species of person like that walking on earth. We are universally fallen in sin. And as we come to the recognition in other people by observing their sinfulness, it can very often, Satan can use that and our fallen minds can use that to sabotage our relationship with God and our faith. You've heard it very often that a person was a young person and they were going to church and they loved going to church, they participated in Sunday school and all the activities the church might have, and then they were exposed to some impropriety or some indiscretion or some even overt terrible sin of a religious figure, and that scarring forever cause them to rebel against God and they will not think about darkening the doors of the church. They will not think about trying to open the Bible and read other than to try to disprove and to mock it. And if someone tries to witness to them, they immediately shut down because they have, uh, they have conflated God and His holiness with the sins of mankind. But I want to say this morning that if someone here has had doubts in their hearts arise over the character of God because of the failings of people, you are wildly mistaken in what you're doing. It's a terrible thing. One of the reasons why we should strive for holiness is knowing that people have the tendency to look at us and attribute who we are with who God is. And so we want to be living epistles. We want to be these reflections, as much as we are able, of God's light, of God's character, so that all people regardless of how close they are to us. Listen, sometimes we have a tendency to let down our guard with our spouse or, or think that our sin is okay as long as it's hidden behind closed doors to the people who really know us. But listen, we want to reflect the character of Christ to everybody, to everyone. But I want to say this morning that there comes a point sometimes when good men, good women... And that's what I read in your hearing this morning, is a list of good people, and many of them failed. So how do we respond to those people? You know, a good question to ask yourself when you're um, uncertain about what to do, ask what God did. What did God do? In situations similar to this, what would God have us to do can often be answered by what God already did. We begin this series, now this book of Matthew is is written largely to Jews to prove the veracity of, of Jesus being the Messiah, that he really was the Messiah, and so A lot of people may get bored with where it starts, but I love where it starts, with this lineage, because what it's doing is it's been 400 years of silence where no prophetic word has been given, and then as we open the pages of Scripture, the very first section of it begins to focus upon one person, and that is the person of Jesus. And yet, if an audience is going to listen to this person, Jesus, there are a few A few requirements that must first be met to validate the claim that he really was the Messiah or the anointed one sent from God. And one of those requirements was that he be of the offspring of Abraham, of the offspring of David. So Matthew begins here by trying to say, you need to pay attention to Jesus because the central prophecy or qualification that Jews exalted at the time about who he was at the very beginning of this book, check that off because he meets those qualifications. And yet as we look through this list of men and these lists of women, what we find is not a list of people who were perfect, but a people that was far from perfect. Abraham's considered The father of faith. And that's where this section begins. And yet Abraham had a lot of flaws. He lied. You say, well, he didn't lie because it was his half-sister. He lied. Right? His intent was to conceal reality to the king. Didn't do it once, right? Twice. Twice. He also had a period, despite being the father of faith, as it's called, or as we often reference him, there were periods where his faith wavered. And he acted prematurely before God's promise had been fulfilled due to his lack of faith. You remember when Eleazar of Damascus was the one who he brought before the Lord after having been promised a seed that would come that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sands upon the seashore. And he brings at at an all-ripe age when his wife was barren and he was far past the age of having children. He says, allow Eleazar to live before you forever. And God says, no, out of your loins is going to come a child of promise. But God, having delayed fulfilling of that promise, Sarah and Abraham get eager, anxious perhaps. And Hagar is given to Abraham, and then the treatment of Hagar, you know, just isn't right. She's sent away, and she got so desperate, she thought they were just going to stay there and die. Isaac, his son, is the next one listed here. You know, we see, as we've pointed out many times before, the pain of favoritism. It was deep. Preferring. And it it says so clearly in the Bible from God's vantage point Isaac loved Esau, and Sarah loved Jacob. Just clear comes right out and tells us in the very beginning of them being born. I love this one and you love that one. And listen to me this morning. That is sin. And it had an incalculable impact upon generations that were forthcoming. The people of Edom which are spoken about throughout the Bible, that became the enemies to God's people, were a product of Esau's line. And so all of those people, for generations and generations, there were grudges and hatred, which began at the very beginning with two parents who favored one above another. It's wrong and sinful, And yet at the same time, we can look at Abraham and Isaac and advocate and say, as much as they look like Christ, we should follow them. And the Bible over and over, especially with Abraham, lifts him up as one that we ought to emulate. And yet he failed. Isaac failed Jacob. His name was supplanter. And he lived up to his name. You know, I would think, I would hope, I've got four boys, they get a little competitive at times. I would hope if my son came in and was saying, I'm starving, starving to death, that my other son would have the good character to say, would you like something to eat? Right? Let me buy you a meal. Let me prepare something for you. But Jacob didn't. He used the weakness of his brother to seize something permanently through a sinful means. In short, Jacob was a sinner. Go on, there's, I'm not going to cover all these people because it would take too long. But in verse 5, I love this, that Obed... Was born of Rahab. So, one of the mothers in this lineage is given to us. There's a couple of them that are given to us here. And she was the Canaanite harlot. She was really bad, (laughs) right? Like a harlot, people tend to think of them as the dregs of society. And that behavior as destructive as you can come. To destroy household after household after household. We'll contribute to it in your actions. She was a Canaanite. She wasn't even one descended from the lineage of Abraham that we know of. What about Ruth? She was a Moabite. She wasn't one that came from a good old missionary Baptist family, right? She wasn't one who met what people would expect God's pure lineage to come from. And it gets and it makes a big distinct point. It's separated. This lineage is separated and the middle part is David, and a number of years ago I remember and of course I know David's life I've read it I've heard it my whole life about David I remember one day sitting down I just wanted to read his whole life in one setting I began to read David's life and I don't know how you can read David's life without just falling in love with who he was as a person he had such he was just a, a good man And on so many accounts, he exemplifies what God wants us to be. He had courage. He had humility. He had a willingness to condescend to people of low estate. If you were to package together the perfect son, the perfect king, King David. And yet, even in saying that, can you hear that voice in your head? The blemish? The yeah, but? And it's not like a small little thing. And it's not even a thing where he just went out with uh, Bathsheba and, and did what they said. Although it's interesting to me that within this lineage, God had it so that Solomon was not born of all of David's wives, but specifically he was born of the one who he attained through sin. That God could have placed any of David's wives as the one by which the, the Savior would be born, but God in his wisdom chose the wife of Uriah, as it says here. David. And I remember when I read that sin that he committed, that he committed it, it like devastated me as if I didn't know it unless he was a friend of mine. Like it just struck me, the Holy Spirit just overwhelmed me with how disappointing it is that a man that was destined to do such great things could murder someone, but not just murder them, do it in the most dishonorable way. Like Uriah comes back, and what an honorable man Uriah is shown to be, right? He goes and he comes back, all of the conniving of plan and of David, and yet Uriah comes back, and I think of myself, what would I have done if I would had one day back in Bowling Green from having been overseas fighting a war? I would have gone home to be with my family. And yet Uriah, the honorable man that he was, Refused because he said, I cannot enjoy a benefit that those dying for the cause of Israel are not enjoying. And yet God didn't choose to bring the Messiah through Uriah, the honorable man. It was through David. And then Solomon is born. Solomon fell prey to the weakness of the flesh and that warfare, but he also fell weakness to the culture around him. He just, he placed it, despite what God said, he places the culture all around him. Temptation all around him. All the strange gods of his wives were all around him. And he, especially in his older age, when you would think wisdom would prevail, especially when it's the wisest man that has ever lived, you would think wisdom would prevail, but it didn't. Solomon known for his wisdom is also known for kind of a disgusting sinfulness. Rehoboam, we could talk about him. I'm not going to this morning. I want to get to our point today. There's two more I want to bring up before we're done. Hezekiah. Hezekiah is another one that just really disappoints me. I remember the first time I studied it, I ended up preaching it. This is years and years ago over at Fairview Memorial, actually. And... Uh, It just broke my heart when I read the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is this great king and you read about how great of a king he is and how he undid so many of the things that past kings were unwilling to do and he did good in the sight of the Lord and and he was honored because he did good in the sight of the Lord and he calls out to God and he asks God once he's struck with sickness, Lord, extend my life. And so God gives him that extension of life and then it comes to a place where God is going to judge them because of Hezekiah's sin because he went and he... From what I understand, he was proud and he was showing all of uh, all the, these, uh, these uh, uh, people that came in from other countries. He was showing them all of the, the riches and all of the wealth. And he was boasting in his greatness. And because of that, God punished Hezekiah. But he didn't really punish Hezekiah. He said, in the future, after you die, your sons are going to be taken into bondage. And then there's this super sad thing that it says about Hezekiah that Hezekiah was glad because none of those things would occur in his day. And man, it's like you read all these good things. And isn't that the the story of life that you can spend your life with somebody and you can revere them as much as you can possibly reveal them and revere them. And the story is so beautiful to you. And you look, you, you, they're this archetype of what you want to be. And then it takes learning one thing about them. And our sinful hearts can eliminate and mar everything good that they've ever done. Kind of what Hezekiah did to me. It was just sad. Then he has, what is it? His son's name is Amon. List for two years. Is that right? You know, Manasseh. Manasseh is the king, and for 55 years, everything ungodly that you could possibly do, Manasseh does. You can't get more ungodly than how Manasseh was. And then Amon, and then all these men. Then I love that it comes to Joseph. And then it just begins to tell us the story of Jesus. You see, this morning, what I'm wanting to, I guess, the purpose of the message is to say this good men and women are going to fail. They are. The greatest men that you've ever met are going to fail. And if you think that good men are good of their own strength, of their own wisdom, of their own superiority... Than our faith. And I think very often we subconsciously put people on this pedestal thinking and assuming that they have reached this place of righteousness or they have been able to conquer up to this point gross immoralities and gross sin because of their own strength, because of their own goodness. But anybody who knows what the scriptures teach, and any man or woman who strives to live in righteousness knows this that the house will not stand except the Lord build the house, except the These people are firmly rooted hour by hour, day by day, dependent upon the shed blood of Christ to both forgive them but also enable them to live in accordance with what God has commanded. Listen, young person, today I want you to know there's going to come a place where you're disappointed in your parents. You may have great parents. But as you get older and you begin to understand more, you're going to look at them and you're going to see flaws. You're going to see mistakes. You're going to see abject failure on their part and the part of God. And very often those same parents will get up and they'll praise the Lord and they'll testify. And oftentimes Satan can plant a seed of bitterness in our hearts towards them because what we cry in our spirit is hypocrite. Hypocrite! You're fake and you're you're, you're not really who you say you are. And listen, there are people who are like that. There are people who act hypocritically and they come to church and as Jesus taught us, they clean the outside of the cup and the inside is full of poison. And I will not discount that that's possible. But you know what? Every person who truly is a man or woman of God who's striving to serve God, I remember when the Lord showed me this. It was through the life of somebody that this happened to me, where I saw their faults and failures, and it became a great disappointment to me. I began to realize that the secret to a Christian life is not being perfectly righteous. It's being quickly repentant when you're unrighteous. It's knowing Listen, if somebody tries to credit me with something, no. You don't understand. (laughs) If you're trying to credit somebody with being something that is righteous and good, you just don't understand. Men and women aren't. But God is. And here's what this text in Matthew chapter 1 reveals to us. Where sin abounded grace did much more abound. Isn't it amazing that from these lists of people who are sinful, God chose to bring to the world a Savior. What does that say about who God is? Well, it tells us a couple things about God. God is much more merciful than what we are. That's one of the things I love about scripture and I don't know how to balance this and it's going to come out too strong one way or the other. I know that God is perfectly just. I know that God punishes sin. I know that we're never going to get away with anything sin-wise because God judges. And at the end, and at the other side of things, I know that God is merciful to a degree that we cannot possibly comprehend. He is compassionate. And it has bewildered me many times to be in the presence of someone who I knew their sin. I knew their failings. And perhaps those failings and sins were pretty, flat, pretty fresh. Hadn't been so long since I had seen those terrible things that they've done. And yet at the same time, moments, days, weeks later, I could see that same person being a vessel of God whereby God's Holy Spirit was manifesting himself and affecting deeply my heart. And very often I would strive to try to figure out some theological explanation to how is this possible that he can be this way and yet God can use him. And yet in all of that, when you plunge deep, I think what emerges is the fact that God is merciful to us. God is gracious to his people. And striving for perfection or striving to see people in a light and refusing to see their flaws and their blemishes truly takes away from the glory of Jesus Christ because in this list of people who have failure after failure and sin after sin, at the very end of it emerges Jesus who is perfect in every way. And that's what the text is partially trying to do. Look at all of these people and how imperfect they are. But then, Jesus. And the rest of the book, guess what it's not about? It's not about all those people. No, the rest of the book isn't about them. The Bible goes silent about those people. And what does it do? It just lifts up Jesus. And one of the awesome things about the Gospels, everybody else is an accessory. Like, we sometimes focus on Peter, and when we get in the book of Acts, we sometimes focus on Paul, and we lift all of these men up, but listen to me, Peter and Paul are nowhere close to Jesus. Jesus is the only man who emerges from this text, not only of the Gospels, from all the Bible, and he is something that the Bible has not described in anybody else. What do people often do? They put hope in man, religious men, religious women, parents. And when they see those people, their failings and their faults, or those people do some terrible thing, Their hope in what people often say humanity is gone. And the question I want to ask is why was your hope ever in humanity in the first place? Because the Bible is clear, our hope should never be in humanity. But what it has done in my life is not made me doubt who God was because of the failings of God's people. Rather, what it has done is shifted my attention and my allegiance and my dependence from those people to the one that the Bible unequivocally declares will never fail. Sometimes whenever somebody dies that has had a big impact on us, you'll see people just fall apart. I'm all about grieving. And there are times where that's what's going to happen. We're going to fall apart. But when we put our hope and our dependence on Christ alone, we can be assured He is one who will never die. Isn't that great? He's never going to, like there's never going to come a point in my existence where that relationship is necessarily severed. It's always there. This morning, men will fail. They'll fall short. Jesus never will. And we sing these songs about how He's our friend. We sing, we read scriptures about He sticks closer than a brother. And I think sometimes people have this thought that if I acknowledge a flaw in my friend or if I acknowledge a flaw in my spouse or somebody acknowledges a flaw in me as their their dad or their close friend, that it's somehow this attempt to separate us. No, at the same time we're doing that, I can with the very next breath glorify the Lord in the failings of other people. In that, God is not like that. This morning, I say today, I, I hope and pray that when men fail you, you don't attribute that to God's failure. God has never failed you. Now I was reading that in the book of Joshua. One of the, it's so good. I was reading the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua. And, the thing that Moses repeats over and over and over to Joshua and over and over to the people. He's about to leave. He's, about to, he's not allowed to cross into the promised land. And he has taken them from slavery to now being on the cusp of having their own nation. And all the things that happen in between. He was the one that they looked to. And he reassures them over and over and over. God will never forsake or fail you. Those are two different things. God will never forsake you. Isn't it a wonderful promise as Christians that even in our own sin, when we disappoint ourselves, God will never forsake us. And then he never fails us. You know what that means? To disappoint. He never disappoints us. I pray this morning. The longer I study the scriptures, the more grateful I am for the person of Jesus Christ. And the more I find myself in preaching, not being able to get away from lifting him up. All the stories and all the good things that were taught, I find, lead straight back to the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. I hope today the Lord would speak to your heart. I hope, I believe full heartedly that there are people here, that there are people that may watch, that become disillusioned with God over the failings of good men. Let that never be the case. God never fails.